boy, it's your boy. And today is Sunday, January 21st. And your boy has been a lazy couch potato lately. There's two things that are going on. One, the weather has been not great. It's been kind of on and off rain season. And, you know, that typically brings me down. I mean, I always hate saying it, but I have a bit of the seasonal affective stuff. So the minute it starts getting darker or the rain or the, or the weather is rainy, I just uh, feel a little more lethargic. I'm sorry, as I'm saying that I'm yawning. Oh, I don't know what happened. I feel like we had a hell of a run where I was avoiding all the yawns, and I feel like these uh, last few missives that I've sent out have been yawn-infested. But be that as it may, that's probably just evidence of what I'm talking about. But it's been rainy, and what that has meant for me is that... Uh, there was a stretch there. I was actually getting out and playing basketball pretty regularly, or at least uh, I, I don't like. I, I've told you this before, but I don't really play basketball as much as I just like shooting free throws for an hour. I always just put on some whatever classical, uh, um, whatever classical music piece I'm sort of listening to at the moment, and uh, usually get to listen to that. And there we go, firing off another one at you, and um, oh, with a stretch too, man. I'm really doing it to you today. Um, and, uh, yeah, so playing basketball, listening to classical music, um, and that's been a good way for me to get some exercise, but, um, haven't been able to do that, and I've really just been, like, watching movies and stuff, and reading books, uh, when I sort of, I think towards the end of the semester, I was sort of looking forward to this time period between now and when I leave for Taiwan, and I thought, oh, that's really going to be a good chance for me to get back into reading, because that's normally what I do, I'm usually a voracious reader, and then I have found since returning to school that when the semester starts, you know, I'm, I'm, I find I'm usually in the middle of a book which just gets left and I never return to it. Or I, I, at least I don't pick it up until the end of the semester. And sorry, I got a third one at you. Man, this could be a rough one. <clears throat> I have to admit, um, this is one of those days where I'm sitting down to do, to do this and I really don't know what we're going to talk about. And um uh, I, I'm, though this is so stupid. This is why I bore people to tears. But the re I'm actually getting to this later than I normally do, because I spent like fucking three, four hours today upgrading my operating system, which is just fucking nightmare. I actually never do that. Um, I've always been weary of it, and I and this sounds strange, but I always felt bad about not up, uh, updating my operating system. But it's it's always just such a hassle. I mean, I usually don't do the incremental sort of whatever. But anytime there's a big change, I, I usually am like a year or two behind. So that was sort of affirmed when I was working. Sorry, this is what we're doing today, folks. We're getting through it. And um, I was working with my longtime collaborator, Gowan Matthews, um, who recorded and produced and engineered a lot of the music I made um, sort of near the end of my, my run there. And uh, he said the same thing. He never updates his operating system. And I think for him, that was really contingent on the fact that you know, when you do that, if you're recording music and you have a ton, tons of plugins, um, it seems to be the case that upgrading, uh, updating your operating system uh, can throw those things out of whack. Things that you rely on or use every day all of a sudden don't work. And that was always a, a nightmare for him. And I'm sorry, I got a fifth one coming at you. Someone really needs to... Oh, hear me. Someone really needs to keep count. Because at the rate we're going, this could be a record-setting um, uh, run of yawns that we have here. Um, so yeah, that's kind of like my default. I just like don't update my operating system and on my, not just on my computer, on my phone too. Um, and when I 
do do it, when I do update it, it usually turns out that I feel like I'm living in a whole new world. Um, you know, things just change. Colors change, buttons change. You know, I'm not convinced that there's really any meaningful changes that happen under the hood. But it seems like, you know, at least if you're using Apple, which is the ecosystem I sort of live in, you know, they need to have a new suite of products every year, regardless. So, um, and it's funny how time flies too. Like I have this desktop computer that I've had and uh, it's still, I don't want to say it feels new. I mean, obviously it doesn't feel new to me, but I was just blown away when I thought I bought this like seven years ago, which is insane. Um, you know, sometimes I, I mean, I look at the cost of this stuff and I feel like, you know, you look at the cost of phones, you look at the top, the cost of computers, especially in the Apple ecosystem, which by the way, are worth their money. I mean, I'm not, I'm not complaining to the extent where I'll put it this way. I mean, I'm, I'm sure they could be cheaper, but the alternative is to actually go cheap and buy a lot of the Windows stuff. And, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of computer people who, you know, they like the modularity, if that's the right way to put it, or they like, they, you know, they like working with Windows. They have, you know, some reason that Apple's too easy or doesn't give you enough access to X, Y, or Z or whatever. But the things that Apple does have is the, you know, since switching to Apple, like maybe 20 years ago or something like that, I've never had a virus. I've never had any problems with Apple. The only technical issue I've ever had with Apple's computers that happened, it was happening consistently over 10 years ago, haven't had the problem in a long time, was the logic board failing. The logic board, I feel like, you know, when I first switched to Mac, the logic board on every computer I had died eventually. Haven't had that problem since then. And um, actually, the reason I updated actually is that someone was trying to convince me recently that... Um, you know, all the problems that used to happen with updating your operating system were kind of a thing of the past. So anyway, the anyway, I, the real reason I sort of updated, to be to be fair, is um, I was having some trouble with an external hard drive, um, and I had to kind of reevaluate how I was backing things up, and um, and uh, yeah, just kind of needed to update my operating system to work with this new kit of software that I'm going to be using to to do that. So anyway, gosh, does it get any more boring? It certainly doesn't. But that's my world right now. I mean, in a way, my my reticence, or not my reticence, my willingness. Wow. If I let myself start the thing, if, if, if wow, okay, here we go. <laughs> I was just about to say, if I could let myself start this thing over, I would, but that's not how we do this stuff, unfortunately. What I meant to say was that my willingness to talk about updating my operating system is indicative of where my mind is generally, which is, you know, up until the beginning of last week, you know, I was keeping myself busy with little errands I had to run or little things that presented themselves to me that I needed to take care of uh, in my preparation for going to Taiwan and in preparing my grad school applications. And I think I was sort of on the cusp of this last time, so I'm not sure if I said this, but I'm at the point now where I've pretty much done everything I can do on my own. I've, you know, prepared all the materials that I can. And actually, I've been very good about, there's a couple of kind of small things like expediting this or that. Because I graduated last semester, a lot of my graduation documents, like my diploma and official transcripts, were not going to be ready for quite a while, but did what I could to reach out to people and, um, you know, see what people could do for me in, in terms of expediting that stuff. And so I, I have everything in now. I have like a digital diploma and all that sort of stuff. Um, I don't get the official one for some time still, but um, yeah, I pretty much have everything I need. And the only thing I'm waiting on 
is my letters of recommendation. So once I have those, which should be, I mean, it could be by tomorrow, frankly, um, I'll have everything I need and I'll fire off those applications. Um, I'm not sure if it was official last time we connected, but I got an apartment in Taipei. It's in a you know pretty cool part of town. It's literally right up the street from where my host family was when I was there over the summer. And, you know, paid my tuition. I had my plane ticket. So really all I need to do is pack up and get over there. And it's pretty exciting. I mean, I've mentioned this to some family members and maybe I've said as much here too, but, you know, when I... when I think about my excitement for going to Taiwan, obviously it helps that I've been there. But what it made me think about today as I was sort of thinking about this stuff was, you know, before I went over the summer, I was terrified is, is not the right word, but I was very nervous. I really had no idea what Taiwan was. It was really just, you know, a scholarship opportunity that, you know, looked very nice and it was a chance to uh, spend some time overseas in uh, a native Mandarin speaking environment and it was going to be paid for and it sounded like an adventure. But I admit I didn't really know a lot about the culture or even Taipei or the city and wasn't sure what the accommodations were going to be like. And, you know, I knew it was going to be hot as hell. And I just, I didn't know what I was getting into and how comfortable I would be and, and how much freedom I would have and all that sort of stuff. And I'm just so happy that, uh, I mean, this is true of all of my experiences. It's very easy for me to be doom and gloom and to tell myself horror stories about how things are going to go. And they never are that. They never, they, nothing has ever turned out the way I sort of, sort of uh, prepare myself. You know, I always sort of steal my resolve when I go into things. And it could be something as simple as like getting my oil changed or doing my taxes is the one that's actually starting to come to the the front of my mind because uh, normally, you know, the period where I'm normally getting my tax stuff together, which is not very involved. It's just either getting things in the mail and downloading them and sending them off to the tax person. But uh, I admit I am a little worried because I know there are things that just probably won't arrive in the mail until after I leave. And so I actually have to start thinking seriously about it. I know you can defer your taxes and stuff. I may have to do something like that. But try to assemble everything I can uh, very soon here, as quickly as I can and uh and and sort of figure that stuff out but the point of the point i was trying to say was it was i was so happy to have gone to taiwan and as i've been one i just enjoyed my time there and it was very clear even while i was there that uh, when i graduated that this was a place that i wanted to return to and spend some some more time and some more significant time um i was speaking with a i think it could have been my mom but i i think i had a similar conversation with my friend who's in taiwan currently but this idea of like, you know, I don't, I never see myself living overseas, you know, although I'm, I, I could be going to grad school in China. Um, you know, I just, yeah, I just don't see myself living overseas long term or anything like that. But what I am really happy about is that I, there's a place in the world like Taiwan that I really enjoy. And, you know, unless I go and I have some catastrophic experience there or who knows what's happening in the world. I mean, I saw, um, uh, Xi Jinping's recent speech, you know, where he said the reunification of Taiwan with mainland China is inevitable. It's hard to, I mean, it's hard to know how serious or imminent this stuff is because it, that seems to have, be the the tenor of the conversation for the last X number of years, who knows how long. But um, yeah, there could be some shift in world events that make 
makes Taiwan a harder place to get to or a less hospitable place. I'm not sure. <laughs> Excuse me. But, um, but it's just really nice to have a place in the world that I happen to really enjoy and see myself returning to again and again. And, you know, I've had, you know, there's, there's been a couple of experiences that I've had where I've wanted to, or I'll put it this way, you know, having lived in the Bay Area for, I feel like I've said 16 years for a while. I'd actually have to do the math. It, it could be longer, but at least 16 years. You know, I, I love the Bay Area. I love the weather here. Um, you know, there's just so much to do. Um, and it, it's just a beautiful part of the country. And it's not that other places aren't, aren't beautiful seasonally, but I have to, th I mean, really, the Bay Area is one of the most temperate and consistently comfortable places that I can think of in the country. I mean, really and truly. Uh, there's really, I mean, you sort of do that lateral thing where you think, well, maybe something on the East Coast would be comparable as long as we're at the same latitude. But it's not true. You know, I think New York City is, is relatively comparable latitudinally to San Francisco, and yet it's a fucking swamp in the summer and a fucking nightmare in the winter. But the Bay Area is the most temperate place in the country is that, that I can sort of think of. And yet it's just exorbitantly expensive. And I hate to sound, I don't know, a classist is the word that comes to mind. I'm not really sure how to think about this, but the homelessness and the crime in San Francisco is really out of control. And I've been hearing people complain about that for a while. And it's it's sort of at first it starts to feel like, you know, not in our backyard, like that kind of mentality. Um, it seems a little insensitive. And yet, you know, I don't know what the answer to this is, but it's like a couple times I've had to go go to the Taiwan consulate, the Taiwanese consulate in San Francisco to take care of my, my visa stuff. I was just there last week. And when you get off the BART station in San Francisco, you know, the cliche that we say around here, I don't know if, I don't know if other people hear this, but it's a bit like a Blade Runner hellscape sometimes, which is, you know, one of the things that I do most when I go to the city is I go to the concert hall or I'll go see a classical concert or something like that. And when you go from the East Bay into San Francisco, you get off at a BART station that's called Civic Center. And the walk, uh, well, first of all, the station itself, the BART station at Civic Center itself is essentially a toilet for homeless people. You know, they have these escalators. If you're lucky enough to get off on one of the train cars where there's an escalator right in front of you, great. But there's also, interstitially, there's just staircases, which are just easier to go up. And when you walk up them, they're literally, they they smell like a porta potty And there's usually people sleeping or loitering all up the staircase. And you see people like shooting up and snorting drugs and I'm not saying that I feel threatened per se. I mean, I, I don't want to sound insensitive. Obviously, these people live there. This is their life. And I don't want to be insensitive to how hard life is for them. But I'm just saying, if you also simultaneously live in a city where you're paying an exorbitant amount in rent, you just think, it, you know, it just doesn't feel right, you know? And it, it just, it just, the disparity between the ubiquitous poverty and suffering and the, you know, the supposedly what the quality of life should be comparable to the amount of money that you're paying is just insane. You know, I mean, I live in this, you know, even here in the East Bay, I mean, prices are absolutely insane. You know, I live in a cottage 
in someone's backyard. And if you go on a website like Zillow and evaluate the house that's in front of me, it's over a million dollars. And that and it's just a house. Not even a very I mean it's a it's a fine house. You know, if if if, it, if that was the house I'd end up living in, it'd be a, it'd be a fine place to live, but I'm just saying it's not a million dollar home. If I relocated back to southern Arizona and bought a million million dollar home, it would be a palatial estate. You would have Well, think about it this way. The house that's in front of me is like a two bedroom, one bathroom home, and it's over a million dollars. And it's old. It's not like a nice house. There's nothing new about it at all. And it's over a million dollars. And you just think, if you lived anywhere else in the country, I guess what I'm saying is when you're young, you want to live in a place like San Francisco. You want to live in a cool city where you think cool things are going on. And there definitely are. I mean, it's a, you know, it's a cultural center. There are great concerts and great restaurants and all that sort of stuff. And the weather's great. (laughs) As I list this stuff, I think, yeah, what the fuck? Why would I ever leave here? But it's just way too damn expensive. And if you ever want to own property, you just can't do it out here for less than at least a million dollars. And even then, you're not getting nearly what you think your money should get you. That's what I'm saying. And so over the years, I've just, you know, I've had a couple of experiences that have forced me to kind of get out my comfort zone or travel somewhere. One of them was going back to Cincinnati where I sort of lived until I was 10 years old. And I left that place and thought it was a piece of shit and fuck Cincinnati and all that sort of stuff. And by some, you know, apropos of nothing, weird life circumstances or whatever, my brother ended up spending some time in Cincinnati after he got his doctorate degree. And it had nothing to do with the fact that they that we, that we used to live there. It was just completely circumstantial. And I went back there to do some house sitting for him when he got his dog. And I loved it. And it was so bizarre to be in this area of Cincinnati called Over the Rhine. It's kind of like the cool part. I guess it would be like what the mission was. I don't know if it still is, but what the mission was to San Francisco, Over the Rhine is kind of that for Cincinnati. And it was so bizarre to be in that place and really feel like when you step outside your front door, you felt like something was going on. There's tons of cool restaurants and bars and stores and they have this great city center and the symphony hall is right there and there's this great park and there's a wonderful dark dog, uh, dog park there and there's everything you want is in walking distance. But you really feel kind of like a vibe on the street and I was just absolutely fucking blown away. Now, there's a lot of problems with Cincinnati. It's an incredibly segregated city. Uh, when my brother was there, we went and we saw a soccer game or a football game. It was since, I don't know, football club of football, soccer, something of Cincinnati. I don't know. My brother's going to crucify me. Whatever they call that. And, uh, you know, there's like, first of all, there's like 23,000 people in attendance, which is absolutely fucking insane. It's like, I live in the Bay Area, and if you go to like an Oakland Roots game, there's like a couple hundred. It's insane that in a city like Cincinnati, there's their soccer team gets, you know, 10, 10, couple 10,000 people in attendance. It's absolutely ridiculous. But when they sing the national anthem at that sporting event, they fucking mean it. And uh, it's a very kind of don't tread on me kind of city. So if you can somehow, I don't know, isolate yourself from the political environment, you can have a pretty rad time in Cincinnati where your money's going to go pretty far. Um, 
my brother has since relocated somewhere else, and uh, I went to visit, and I was really hoping to like that area as well. It's just not for me. It's a, it's a fine area to live. It's just, you know, I, I've always been looking to find a place where I arrive and fall in love with it. And that was actually my vibe going to Virginia when I went to Middlebury for the summer and spent too much there, uh, two months there learning Chinese. I know it's a small town, and I know it's in the middle of nowhere, but I admit I was sort of going there hoping I would sort of see it and fall in love with it and think, oh, I could live here. Because if, if you could genuinely fall in love with a place like that, you could live like a fucking king. You know what I mean? You could have some land. You could have a nice house. And that million dollars that you would have bought for a mop closet here in the Bay Area would uh, get you just a really beautiful home, you know, a place where you could really live your life. Unfortunately, it's not a place you want to live. It's a nice place to visit, but it's not a place you want to live. And uh, just to bring this full circle, I just I'm really happy that when I went to Taiwan, I was like, wow, I really love this place. Now, the deal breaker there is that it's overseas. You know, I have siblings and, you know, they're going to have kids and, you know, my parents are here. And the idea of living overseas, it's just like, are you really going to divorce yourself from your life in the United States? And it's just that that feels that feels pretty not doable at this point but it is nice to have a place in the world like taiwan where you think it'd be relatively easy to get back to and um just you know yeah that you could just get to know that that place uh better and better so so yeah i'm looking forward to my time there when i go back Yeah, other than that, I've really just been kind of watching movies. Um, I've been watching a lot of, like, mature Tarantino films, the kind of later Tarantino films, which for me, it's totally like, uh, I don't know, it's biographical or personal or something, but I always kind of demarcate Tarantino's career between, like, um, like there's sort of an earlier early period that ends with Kill Bill Volume 1. For me, and it's weird to sort of split Kill Bill Volume One and Volume Two down the center of that, but I, but I really do, because although it's sort of weird for me, because I was a little bit too young to see Pulp Fiction in theaters when it came out, but I knew about it and I knew that it was an important film, and in the you know sort of around that time, I, I saw Reservoir Dogs, which was you know a really cool movie for me at a young age, and eventually I did see Pulp Fiction, and I actually saw Jackie Brown, his third film, in theaters. And I admit, I didn't love it when I first saw it in theaters. I thought it was long and slow, which uh, it kind of is compared to things like Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs. But I rewatched that. I rewatched Jackie Brown recently. And I really thought about this, although I think I love, you know, of the early period, I think Pulp Fiction is probably the best of his movies. Um, I've probably seen Jackie Brown more than any other Tarantino film. I mean, I've literally seen it dozens and dozens and dozens of times. It's one of those movies where I just know every frame of it. I know every line of it, essentially. It has like a certain musical quality. I can basically sing along to the movie when I watch it. But it's also a movie that kind of gives more and more each time you watch it. And it's not, it's not a complicated movie. But it is also the beginning of this period of Tarantino where his movies are pretty long, but when you actually go back and watch them, you realize how economical they are. Everything is there for a reason. And um, it's just, uh, you know, I don't know, it's a cliche to say that his movies are well-written, but they, they're conceptually, they're just very smart the way that they're laid out. 
Um, but there is kind of a departure, you know, there's kind of like the sort of, I, I can't say it, the sort of the, there's a kind of, uh, sort of narrative sort of quietude to Jackie Brown. And then there's kind of like the kinetic, uh, fractured timeline of movies like Pulp Fiction. And I think that kind of, even though I think Pulp Fiction is probably the peak, you do see in Kill Bill Volume 1 where that's kind of, you know, brought to the fore a little bit. But the thing about Kill Bill Volume 1 is it's kind of the beginning of what I sort of think of as like the Tarantino genre experiments where he does this kind of like revenge. You know, he's really, you know, he's always drawn on his sort of influences, but it is this kind of like... uh uh, what's the word I'm looking for? A sort of virtuosic playing with like a genre homage. And I remember seeing that movie in theaters a few times, at least three or four times, and really, really enjoying Kill Bill Volume 1. I don't know that it's like the movie, when I think about Tarantino, Kill Bill actually doesn't come to mind very often. I often overlook it when I think about his movies. And it's not really a movie I'm usually eager to go back to. Maybe I'm just sort of saturated or something with it, but... Um, you know, I, I yeah, it, it's just not really a movie that like holds a lot for me. And then I actually remember there was kind of a, you know, I started to sort of fall out of love. The, the sort of romance with Tarantino was kind of over with the Kill Bill Volume 2, which to me, again, it, whereas like the first one is kind of like this, uh, I don't even like Japanese revenge type flick. The second one is kind of like a spaghetti Western. And it just felt very kind of like, I don't know, there was a like, compulsory thing about it. It didn't feel very inspired. I think there was a lot of great scenes in that movie, but it's also incredibly anticlimactic. And like the death of David Carradine in that movie is just kind of like nothing. And it just kind of doesn't really come together for me. Um, I should probably rewatch both of those movies since I've been watching a lot of Tarantino lately. But after that sort of begins this period where every time I've sat down to watch a new Tarantino movie, I'm often not in love with it. You know, like, I think it goes like Inglorious Bastards and then, uh, what was after Inglorious Bastards? Um, come on, come on, come on. Oh, Django Unchained, which was another movie. Like, so Inglorious Bastards, I didn't love it. Django Unchained, I didn't love it. Uh, Hateful Eight, I may have skipped over something. Hateful Eight, saw it, didn't love it. Um, and then I think Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And I saw that in theaters and I liked it, but I didn't love it. And the reason is because I feel like a lot of these movies are kind of like celebrity clusterfucks. You know, there's just like a lot of celebrity casting. Whereas like when I look at Jackie Brown, that's a perfectly cast movie everybody's exceptional in that movie and everybody is like perfectly cast, but it's like when I start to look at Inglorious Bastards, it's like Brad Pitt is noticeably not very good in that movie. Like he's kind of funny. He gets a couple chuckles, but there, I, there's probably a hundred of the people that could have done that movie just as well. And so it's like, it's a little unclear to me why Brad Pitt was kind of given that role. Like he doesn't do that accent very well. Whereas you have other actors who are like speaking fucking German Brad Pitt is like noticeably weak in that role. The highlight of Inglorious Bastards is Christoph Waltz, which is like one of the best cinematic villains of all time. Um, um, 
And then I guess after that, the movie that I just rewatched yesterday was Django Unchained, which I've seen a few times. I've probably seen it like three or four times. And I've never really loved it, but for some reason watching it yesterday, I like really liked it. And actually I should say this too of Inglorious Bastards. I rewatched that as well. And liked it a lot more than I had previously. And again, it's one of those things where like at first it feels very convoluted, but there's just so many great scenes in that movie. Um And the same is true of Django Unchained. Sort of watching it again, I really liked the first half, especially. I will admit, like, Leonardo DiCaprio really, like, swings for the fences, but even he kind of has a turn where it seems wild to say because he is a very good villain in that, and he's very memorable. And in a way, it might be... It sounds like I'm saying two things at once. It might be one of his better roles, anything, because it is such a departure for him. It's one of the few roles that you really see him try to embody somebody else because a lot of his movies, he's just kind of him. You know, he's... It's actually ironic. I was about to say he's not a Daniel Day-Lewis, and interestingly, it was Leonardo DiCaprio and Daniel Day-Lewis across from each other in Gangs in New York. Now, everybody looks bad next to Daniel Day-Lewis, right? Like I've said this before, Leonardo DiCaprio in Gangs in New York is the weakest part of that movie. I mean, Daniel Day-Lewis is like the tent pole. The only reason you should watch Gangs of New York is to watch Daniel Day-Lewis. But the same is true of There Will Be Blood. Um, I can't think of the actor's name now, and I, I don't know if I could remember it last time either. But the, the preacher, what's his name? Paul Dano, that's his name. He is, he is legitimately bad in There Will Be Blood. And even though There Will Be Blood is one of the best movies of the last, like, 20 years, and doing it, that's one of the best, you know, cinematic characters in, in, in movie history, Daniel Plainview, Daniel Day-Lewis's character, Paul Dano is a nearly fatal flaw in that film. I mean, he's, he's literally hard to watch at times. He's just really, really, really out of his depth in that movie. Um, and what was I talking about? I don't know. How, how do I bring this back to Tarantino? Uh, Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah, I guess it's one of the few movies that I can think of other than like What's Eating Gilbert Grape where Leonardo DiCaprio really tries to become somebody else. And he does it semi-convincingly. There's a couple weird moments. But um, but again, Christoph Waltz is also very good in Django Unchained. And when I actually think about when Django Unchained came out, like it's one of those movies where like, or, or Tarantino's always sort of crucified, you know, because he used the, he, I mean, the, the N-word count in Django Unchained is absolutely through the roof. And I think uh, it's very easy to sort of criticize Quentin Tarantino for that. But when you think about what the message and the imagery of Django Unchained, it's actually one of the only movies other than like early exploitation films or sort of like niche genre films. It's one of the only mainstream movies, maybe even before movies like Black Panther or, oh man, we got to talk about this one movie called The Woman King, which I watched a couple weeks ago and just failed to bring up that really has a sort of unapologetic black power message. And it's just it's just strange to me because I remember when Django Unchained came out, there was just so much controversy about it because it was, you know, directed and authored by a white person that, you know, the, the sort of ubiquitous word, use of the N-word in that movie. But it's really one of like the few kind of legitimately mainstream, unapologetic sort of black power films that I can think of. And so uh, I could keep talking about Tarantino. Maybe we'll come back to him. Um, I, just to summarize, in case we don't, I'll just say I, I've always kind of felt a little ambivalent about Tarantino's latest movies, but um, 
uh, and this was sort of actually spawned by, I rewatched The Irishman by Martin Scorsese because I also was preparing to watch Killers of the Flower Moon, which I watched recently as well. But Scorsese is kind of, uh, you know, he's in his, the gloaming of his cinematic career. And I remember, although The Irishman was interesting, I didn't love it. But watching it again, I also loved it a lot more. And I also thought Robert De Niro, uh, both in The Irishman and, and, and Killers of the Flower Moon, but definitely in The Irishman, gives an incredibly powerful and understated performance. Like those interstitial, you know, he does the voiceover in the film, and occasionally it'll cut to these kind of establishing shots where he's in his retirement home. Where he's kind of narrating the story from there. His delivery is so understated and so perfect. And there's this one pivotal scene in The Irishman that you just realize, you know, it's not the kind of chew the scenery up acting acting that Robert De Niro does in Raging Bull or something like that, which I think is actually kind of an overrated movie. It's a good movie, but people talk about Raging Bull like it's like the best movie of the of the 70s. And I'm like, I, I don't think so. I actually enjoy something like Taxi Driver a lot more. But there's a scene, and I'm going to spoil some parts of the plot for you, but you know, the premise of the Irishman is uh, uh, Robert De Niro is the guy who sort of comes up in the mob and ends up killing uh, Al Pacino's character, uh, Hoffa. And he has this scene where he calls Hoffa's wife and it's just sort of held on his face and he just can't think of anything to say. He's like trying to console her, but knowing that he's the killer, it's just incredibly understated and uh, it's very, very powerful. And also... His performance in Killers of the Flower Moon, which I, I won't even go into that movie. There's just too much to say about it. Um, is He's also very, he's a very good villain. He's very understated. I'll put it that way. But the point I was going at was, what Latter-day Tarantino. Usually feel very conflicted after first watching, not enamored of his films. But when I return to those movies and watch them again, um, I, I appreciate them more and more. But the movie that I sort of watched the other week, which I, I should have hated and I thought was going to be awful was The Woman King with Viola Davis. And, you know, I don't know how people feel about this, but it just seems, you know, observably true that in the era of Black Lives Matter and Black Panther and this type of stuff, is there, you know, big studios are starting to experiment, um, you know, uh, with movies that are targeted specifically for black audiences, or I would also argue are sort of aimed at the sympathies of white viewers. And oftentimes those movies suck, like Harriet Tubman. A bio Biopics are usually very bad anyway, especially when they're... Like, the Elvis movie that came out recently was a fucking abomination. And they're just, they're just incredible, or walk the line with... They're just incredibly formulaic, and we all know what they're going to be about. And um, especially when the movie Harriet came out, I think everybody knew exactly what it was. It was a, it was a sort of run-of-the-mill biopic, and it seemed topical, and it was probably hoping to sort of sweep up at award season. And I don't think anybody saw it. I actually had this embarrassing moment where I don't know what it says about my film tastes. But with my last girlfriend, we went to the movies and we saw the Downton Abbey movie. And I remember being in line to buy tickets. And uh, my girlfriend sort of looks up and says, oh, what's Harriet? Uh, this, we're actually in the process of buying tickets. We're in line. We're at the counter and there are people behind us. And she's like, what's Harriet? And I said, oh, that's the Harriet Tubman movie. Uh, Harriet Tubman movie. It looks awful. And we get our tickets and we walk away and immediately the couple behind us sort of walks up and they're like, two for Harriet. And I could tell they heard everything I said. And I was like, uh-oh. And uh, that was something that we would always laugh about. Um, 
but the Woman King like could have been bad. It's basically about uh, I forget their name, but you know, basically a warrior class of women in this African kingdom uh, who you know fight for the realm and um, uh, are you know fighting. I think they're the French colonialists um, who are sort of operating in the slave trade, and it's a very you know, it it could have been bad, but it's 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 really fucking great. It shot incredibly well. The script is not great, but it really is elevated by the fucking home run acting that every single person does in that movie. And uh, Viola Davis is uh, transcendent in that role. Uh, it seems kind of you know Viola Davis is kind of like comparable to Meryl Streep now, where everything they do, you're supposed to say how wonderful it is. But it really, really is truly, truly good. And they have this young female actress as well who's kind of playing opposite her, who's actually kind of the kind of Milan character of the film, the kind of young, uh, doesn't fit the mold female who's supposed to get married but uh, sort of eschews the role she's been uh, circumscribed to in the uh, relatively misogynistic culture she's been raised in. And so she... Uh, joins this uh, cast of women fighters and is taken under the wing of Viola Davis and sort of rises through the ranks and that sort of stuff. And it all sounds very formulaic and bad, but it's absolutely fucking incredible. And uh, yeah, so I think that's a very circuitous way of saying that. I actually believe that Django Unchained, even though it's authored and, and helmed uh, by a white filmmaker, is actually kind of in that tradition. I mean, when you watch that movie, it absolutely glorifies uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a not simple way, in an intelligent way. It sort of shows like one, it's sort of, you know, I've been I've been sort of thinking about this idea of like how film, how new films sort of approach similar topics, but defamiliarize us to them so that we can sort of relive their horrors or kind of be re or, you know reintroduced to something that may be well-worn territory, but how can we see it in a new way? So the, the example that I've been using recently is like war films. You know, it's like when All Quiet on the Western Front, when everybody was talking about that movie, I didn't want to see it because I was really like, you know, after Saving Private Ryan, do we really need another war film? Do we really need a, no, we, like, we already kind of know what that movie is before we go into it. We're like, yeah, it's war sucks and all that sort of stuff. And it's gritty and it's all that sort of stuff. But uh, All Quiet on the Western Front does a really good job of defamiliarizing the topic and uh, making it kind of, you know, kind of reintroducing us to how horrific war is. And, you know, for Django Unchained, it does that for slavery. Like when you think about, you know, 12 Years a Slave, I think, did that relatively successfully. I don't know if that's a timeless film. But obviously some of those scenes, like the just the whipping scenes in that film are just, and also, speak of Paul Dano, it's another movie where he gets beat up. And there's some, I, I don't know if filmmakers are wise to the fact that there's something kind of unlikable or, I don't know, something about Paul Dano just rubs me the wrong way. But it's like both in There Will Be Blood where Daniel Plainview's like throwing his face into the oil and kind of slapping him around a little bit. There's also a scene in 12 Years a Slave where uh, the male actor, I forget his name, kind of gets the switch out of Paul Daniel's hand and starts chasing him around and beating him. And uh, filmmakers seem to like putting Paul Daniel in those situations. What was I talking about? Yeah, Janko Unchained actually kind of defamiliarizes slavery in a way that I think is, um, is um, 
um, yeah, pretty ahead of its time, actually. And um, I think some of the things I used to not like about it, uh, uh, you know, the kind of comic violence or whatever, like I actually have come to enjoy it more and more. And I also think one of the ways that it kind of defamiliarizes the horrors of slavery is through the Samuel L. Jackson, the Samuel L. Jackson character, who is completely kind of reduced to this kind of, uh, uh, who was uh, Dr. Frankenstein's sort of sycophantic helper, not Iago. What was his name? But, you know, kind of goes, yes, master, kind of walks around and does his bidding. Uh, oh, I can't think of his name. But Samuel L. Jackson, there's a, I don't know, I'm trying to avoid the word, the, you know, the house, N-word, you know that term? But he is this completely uh, sycophantic uh, character. And, you know, he does these scenes where he really shows, like, how certain people, like, the horrors of slavery was not only the the horrors that people were subjected to, but the amount of their own humanity they had to surrender and how they had to adapt to sort of survive in these horrific situations. Like the establishing scene for Leonardo DiCaprio is when Christoph Waltz and uh, Jamie Foxx sort of go up into his parlor and they call it the sort of Mandingo wrestling where they have the two black men who are sort of fighting. And it's a horrific fight, so that's horrible. But it's interesting because the scene is offset. I think we've met Samuel L. Jackson by that point too. And we realize, oh, wow, this is a completely different... He, it's, it's, he's a villain in and of himself. Um, and in some ways, I think for Jamie Foxx, kind of the ultimate villain. Like Leonardo DiCaprio is just unabashedly bad, but there's this great moment at the end where uh, Jamie Foxx comes to get his revenge on the household, and he tells, he's like, all the black people, get away from these white folks because they're all about to get shot up. And Samuel, Jackson, uh, Samuel L. Jackson goes for the door, and he says, not you, you're exactly where you need to be. And so it's just interesting that actually the arch enemy uh, in that film is, is actually another black man. But uh, that establishing scene is, yeah, you have the horrors of the fight that's taking place in one corner where Leonardo DiCaprio and some other white dude are, are making bets on this fight that's taking place, and it's absolutely horrific to watch. But there's also this horror that's happening on the other side of the room is that you also have this other black female who's kind of like a courtesan of the house who's clearly like a, a comfort woman. She's like dressed in fine linen, and you also have another, one of the black slaves who is clearly living in the house and not living in the fields she dresses in a French maid's outfit, you know, like Leonardo DiCaprio is supposedly a Francophile. And so it seems like he has his uh, housewomen sort of uh, dress as French maids and they have to stand in a certain way and call him Monsieur Candy. And um, the fact that they just are, are completely uh, immune to this, uh, the way that they've kind of had to, I don't know, surrender their own humanity to like stay comfortable in the home. It's just all, it's all very, very interesting. And... Uh, yeah. Yeah. So Django Unchained is a movie worth revisiting if you haven't seen it for a while. And, uh, you know, it's just a really, really cool ending as well. Jamie Foxx is, is fucking incredible in that movie. And, uh, yeah, it's kind of wild to think about how storied his career has been. I saw him in another movie recently, which I, I didn't love. It was called uh, Baby Driver. It's an Edgar Wright film. Edgar Wright's the director who did like Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz and those movies. And it has some of those cool, it has, you know, some good moments in it. I think it's a, it's a yeoman's effort of a, of a movie, but, um, the, the fatal flaw of that film is there's a central love story, which is just sickening. And it's just so, I, I not, not sickening like it's, uh, anything untoward about it. I just mean, it's just so saccharine and so unbelievable. And, uh, 
Yeah, it just kind of makes my skin crawl. It's yeah, very unbelievable and just, I don't know. Uh, but uh, Jamie Foxx is in that film as well. But anyway, I don't know. I think I just feel my mind scrambling over here. I've talked about Latter Day Tarantino. Ah, what else did we talk about? I recommended a movie to my brother recently, actually, that he didn't love, which I thought was very good. I think I've actually been pretty lucky lately when I, I've watched a few movies recently that I really, as soon as they kick off, I go, oh, shit, this is exactly what I'm looking for. Like, I, I always look for new movies that are kind of, you know, are just going to convince me that there are still people making serious films or that there is still kind of like serious, notorious filmmakers. Like, there's very, like, Quentin Tarantino is still that director where, like, when he comes out with a movie, you're looking forward to it. And there's only a couple people who really do that for me. You know, Ari Aster is one of those. Uh, and so when it's like, when I saw a movie like Saltburn, I, as soon as it started, I was like, oh, shit, yes. Um, the one I watched recently, which was completely on a whim, I, I probably just finished watching something else on Netflix. Um, I can't think of what it was. But like when I returned to the main page, I was recommended a movie called The Nest, which is from like 2000. Gosh, I was going to say 17. It may not be that old. It could be like 2020 or something. But it's a Jew Law film. I had never heard of it. And um, it's just a, as soon as it started, I was like, oh, this is right up my alley. And I absolutely loved it. It really is a family drama, but it's shot like a horror movie. And it's basically Jew Law is English. He's come to the United States. He's been here for a while. He's um, married to a woman who seems to have a daughter from a previous marriage, but they have a son together. And it sort of begins with begins with him floating the idea of returning to London so that, you know, things have kind of become stale for him in the United States and he wants to go back to London to kind of establish his career. And so he moves his family over to London and they have this beautiful home. But it quickly, it, you know, it's really a film about, it's a period piece as well, which is very interesting. It's sort of uh, in the era of Reagan presidency. But it is, you know, really about Jude Law's, you know, desire for power. And uh, um, it's a very subtle family drama that's staged like a horror movie and shot like a horror movie. And every single scene of that movie was like very, very tense for me. And uh, completely unexpected. So... If you're looking for a good movie to watch, I would recommend that one. Um, there's really only like two moments in it, which are kind of mm, rang a little false for me. I talked about them with my brother, and I don't I don't want to spoil them for you here. But even that, they're 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 not they're not bad moments necessarily. But it's just one of those movies too that just you really feel like you're in the hands of a competent filmmaker, where there's just so many moments where I was just like, oh man, this is great. And Jude Law is exceptional as well. I feel like we haven't heard a lot from him recently, but he's very, very good in that movie. It's called The Nest. Yeah. What else am I doing with my lazy ass? I've been doing a lot of reading. Um, I started reading Lord of the Rings which is one of those books that I think people who know me would have assumed I had just read. I've read The Hobbit, uh, but I had never read Lord of the Rings. And I think part of that was, you know, well, I'll put it this way. My my brother, I feel like my brother and I together pretty much have all the bases covered. You know, like we're both into books, we're both into movies, we're both into music. 
And I think just a part of being a twin is I don't think you do it consciously. Well, I'll, I'll say two things. I think any siblings try to kind of differentiate themselves on a subconscious level. So even though it seems like me and my brother just kind of have our different interests, I do wonder sometimes if there's a way in which, especially growing up, now we sort of look for common ground on things, I, I think. But I wonder if there's a way in which when you're younger, as twins, you try to differentiate yourselves. And so you're like, oh, my brother's doing this. I guess I'll sort of be over here or something like that. Um, but it's like I was very much in kind of the literature realm, I think, or reading the classics. And my brother, I remember going up, was reading things like science fiction and fantasy. And I was actually thinking about this the other day because in my more self-congratulatory moments of self-reflection, I say, you know what, man, you really do have good taste. You know, even the things that maybe, I don't know, other people weren't into, history has been very kind to those things. Like one of them I was talking about recently was the play Angels in America. Like there's a play you stumbled on, it was very formative, which I had absolutely no context for. It wasn't like I understood it to be a classic of, uh, drama or something. I just saw it on a bookshelf and I said, oh, that's for me. And I read it and, it, you know, it, it, it's a great play. Um, I feel like my brother has the same thing too, where it's like, yeah, he was reading science fiction and fantasy, but he was really into like uh, Orson Scott Card, reading Ender's Game, and he was reading uh, Lord of the Rings, and he was reading Philip K. Dick, all the kind of shit that like now when the movies get made, people kind of retroactively go to these books and pretend like they liked them or always liked them or something, but it's like, my brother was really into that shit, you know? So uh, even though he was reading in kind of different corners of literature, he he kind of knew what quality was. I mean, one example I, I had sort of had forgotten about and was thinking about recently is a book called House of Leaves, which I don't know how my brother stumbled on that book, but I remember just, uh, that was a book that I just didn't read for years. I ended up reading it maybe for the first time like 10 years ago. And I actually saw a trailer for a movie recently where I realized they completely ripped the fucking book off. Uh, and I think it's with Willem Dafoe. Actually, no, no, no. It's with Kevin Bacon. But I remember my brother just, you know, it's hard to really summarize House of Leaves. Uh, if you want to look look that book up and you'll understand why it's hard to summarize. I highly recommend you buy it and read it. It's, a, it's an experience you'll never forget. But one of the central premises of the book is basically a family that buys a home and all of a sudden these weird anomalies start presenting themselves like the interior of the house or the living room or the kitchen or whatever he's measuring is bigger than when you measure from the exterior. And then they end up finding like a door that leads to this hallway. And I don't want to spoil it for you, but there's basically this changing labyrinth of whatever that the, there's a door that leads to this like changing labyrinth and it just gets deeper and deeper. And it's just, it's just an insane book and it's wonderful. But I realized there, there was a movie with Kevin Bacon made that they completely ripped that premise off, which I haven't seen. And I don't think anyone else saw the movie honestly did uh, as well. But I just remember my brother telling me the story of House of Leaves about, um, uh, about the house and about the dimensions and the measuring and how there's this hallway and it changes and there comes a point where like the guy kind of gets lost in the maze and he's like lighting his way by burning the pages of these of this of this book that he's reading that you that's also interspersed in the in the book that you're reading and it just sort of haunted me you know I just always remembered that and uh yeah this is one of those examples where I realized that my brother has good taste now sometimes we diverge like I recommended the movie The Nest to him and he thought it was kind of silly. So uh, you may not like it.
he may be more aligned with my brother's sensibilities, but I think more often than not, I think we have pretty good uh, bullshit radars for art. You know, there's all the stuff that people celebrate and they talk about as if it's something important. And I think we're both pretty well attuned where we realize, ah, that's just so much malarkey. There's a word you don't hear every day, malarkey. People say, oh, this is art. And I say malarkey. So what was I talking about? Oh, reading Lord of the Rings. <laughs> oh, man. Some days it's easy. Some days it's hard. Today's hard. But, uh, yeah, I've been reading Lord of the Rings. And, yeah, I was thinking about the word literature, right? Lord, I was, it was, I've sort of been sort of tossing this idea around, which is Lord of the Rings is not great literature. Meaning, as I read it, I'm not swept up. I mean, there are some scenes, and actually it gets better as it goes along. The Fellowship, I mean, halfway, I'm sort of three quarters of the way through the two towers right now. It actually gets better better starting with the two towers initially it's just like okay we've seen the movies and you're just it's very linear and you're just kind of following people along on their journey and it's all very predictable or whatever and maybe it doesn't help having seen the movies or whatever because i'm just picturing elijah wood and uh, uh ian mckellen and all that sort of stuff but it's just not very you know even when it's supposed to be exciting it's not that great uh until th there's a couple sort of standout scenes from the first book first book like the minds of moria and uh I guess the, the equivalent of the you shall not pass scene in the movies. That's uh, that's very good. But I'm just saying it's not like high literature. You know, you're not like, you're never swept away by the brilliance of a passage or anything like that. However, however, I was also thinking about this, is it's actually better than that. Tolkien may not be like Dostoevsky or a Tolstoy, an unqualified master writer or a novelist or, or whatever you have, uh, whatever you want to call it. Tolkien's actually a bit different, but he's, you know, I, I sort of think about, it, it's ironic because I think like if I had to choose who I would be, if I had to choose between being Tolstoy or being Tolkien, I would much rather be Tolkien which is he may not be an unqualified master of the craft, but he is a creator of worlds, which is much more important. Now, I, you know, it, it's, it's bad to pick examples like Tolstoy and Dostoevsky because I also think that they happen to have their finger on the pulse of, of this thing that I'm talking about in, in their own way. But what Tolkien tapped into is the, you know, he, he may not be an unqualified literary genius, but he is the, he's a creator of worlds, and he's also a creator of community and cultism, if that makes sense. Like, for example, when I was younger and reading books like, uh, reading the classics, right? Like, reading the books that you're supposed to read. And I know Lord of the Rings gets sort of lumped in with that as well. You know, my brother loved Lord of the Rings, you know, and it, and it kind of, I mean, when those movies came out, he was, he, you know, he's not like one of these people who like, there are people who love Tolkien, like go to Renaissance fairs and all that sort of shit. But I mean, my brother was genuinely excited about those movies. I mean, he recognized that Lord of the Rings was like uh, a very important artifact of culture and that deserved a good cinematic treatment. And it looked like we were going to get the movies that the books deserved. And that was like very fulfilling for my brother. 
And he also re- read other Tolkien stuff like Cimmerillion and all that sort of stuff. So he was very invested in that world. And I can't pretend to know what my brother thought about those books, really. But people who love Tolkien love Tolkien. And what Tolkien creates is an entire world that people can kind of give themselves to and really sink into. And even though books like War and Peace and uh, Crime and Punishment are great and people can sort of hold them up as, uh, you know, the, the, the pinnacle of literary achievement or something like that, they're not the books that you give your life to. And Tolkien is one of those writers. Tolkien is one of those artists that, for some people, they read and they just invest exorbitant amounts of their, not only their time reading those books, but they build an identity from it. And Tolkien, for a lot of people, is the foundation for the rest of their lives because it's such a complete world, this Middle Earth world in and of itself, that it becomes like a simulacrum that people build their lives around. There's a, there's a central kind of moral message in those books that's sort of centralized or located in this sort of simulacrum world that that becomes the lens through which people experience reality. And there are things like war and peace that, you know, approximate something like that. But it's not the same thing. You know, I one of the uh, recent sort of uh, missives that I've sort of uh, sort of uh, made for posterity and sort of sent out to everyone was reading my uh, honors thesis where I talk about this idea of world genesis. Now that's a little academic and something like that, but where why that subject interests me is, you know, I believe that artists, whether they realize it or not. The best artists, the most lasting and enduring artists are world creators like that. And they take those same principles that are outlined in Bauman's you know, first principles of science and they create worlds for their, you know, world building is a world that a word that just gets thrown around a lot in creative stuff because we have things like the Marvel Universe and, and now with Dune, people talk about world building and stuff. Um, which actually, we, you know, there probably is a way in which you could talk about those books, which was another series that my brother loved growing up, where there is uh, a kind of world building and that sort of stuff that happens in there as well. Tolkien is the type of artist who will create a piece of art that um, you can give your life to. And so I'm seeing we're about to run out of time here, so I don't have time to really go into this. I'll continue to think about this because it is worth, it, it is worthy of spending more time with this and really kind of teasing this out. But the point is, as I was just sitting there, I was thinking, and as I'm reading this book, so I'm, I'm just thinking, you know, this isn't like great literature. And it could just be there maybe are certain books that you really just have to read um, when you're younger, or they seem to have the most impact on people when they're younger. Like, for example, like Catcher in the Rye might be one of those books. It's a fine book. Of course, when you're young, you read it, and it feels like, um, you know, a literary achievement. Or Lord of the Flies is a, is a fine book, but yes, you read it at a very impressionable young age. And it is uh, um, uh, foundational, right? Uh, maybe Lord of the Rings is a little bit like that. But I, as I'm reading this book and I'm thinking, oh, I'm not really getting swept away in it. It doesn't strike me as great literature. I was thinking, and yet, if I had to choose between, uh, if I had to choose between being like a Tolstoy or Dostoevsky or a Tolkien, I would much rather be Tolkien, a world creator for people. And uh, and uh, yeah, so that's why I want to be. I want to be talking, and uh, I'll continue to be talking about that later. So we're out of time. 
Apple Store to put a bullet in things today. But, uh, yeah, thanks for listening. Thanks for your time. And ciao for now. <laughs>